Good morning, Disciples Church. I'm Robert Hannon. Uh, please um, follow along with the scripture today. It is Luke 15, 1 through 2, and 11 through 24. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to be one of the citizens of that country, who, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And, what, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Thank you. you. May be seated. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you. Good to be with you today. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you decided of all places to be, particularly on Super Bowl Sunday, that you could join us here. Turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's been going on in the sporting world for the last couple of weeks. We had a Pro Bowl that included no tackling. We had uh, Olympics that include all sorts of events about which people become instant, uh, instant professionals, understanding the intricacies of the slalom when they've never actually been on a slalom course in their life and venturing their opinions about this skater or that performer or whatever else it is. And it's good for me, at least, to be coming into a Sunday where I'm going to see a sporting event that I actually understand where I know the rules, I know what to expect. There's something that's familiar and comforting about that to me. There's something about the return to the familiar that's good. And as we come into this text this morning in Luke chapter 15, we come to a story that is one of the most well-known stories in all of Scripture. The term prodigal son is a term that is known far outside of the Christian circles. It's a term with which almost everyone is familiar. And so there is something comforting about that. And so as we continue on in our series for about the next eight weeks now, refocusing on what is our mission and our purpose as a church. Why do we exist? And not just we in the broad sense of Christians or a Christian church, but specifically here at Disciples, what does it actually look like for us to be a church? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is the gospel and the effects of the gospel in our life? And so we started last week by talking about what it actually is that Jesus Christ came to do. 
What actually is the Gospel? If we were trying to define it, if we were trying to boil it down to its essential parts, what would the Gospel be? And today, we come to a conversation that I think is equally as interesting, which is who did Christ come to seek? Who did He actually come for? What does that mean for us as a church? What does it mean for us as Christians individually and collectively? And the story that we're going to look at today, the story of the prodigal son, while familiar to just about everybody, is one that is multifaceted. There are verses that we didn't even include in our reading this morning and that we likely won't even touch on that are part of this story if you look at the end of the chapter. But this story in and of itself is so multifaceted. There's so much to it. And for a host of reasons, we're not going to get into all of those facets today. But the reason I love this story is because it is a stark example of who it is that Christ came to save and the heart with which He comes to save. And so with that, let's jump in right away to this text. Beginning in verse 1, this kind of sets the stage for the story that's going to be told. This is a historical account in these first couple of verses before Jesus gets into the stories that He tells. But here's what it says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners, and eats with them. Now, as we read those verses, there's all kinds of cultural baggage that needs unpacking in order to understand the significance of what happens, even just in those two verses. We in the evangelical church in the modern age are so familiar with this story and so familiar with all of the characters in it that we miss how this would have played to the original audience. Because here's how far we've come. We hear the term Pharisee and immediately we recoil. We boo and hiss in our minds, right? These are the villains in the story. We know that these are not the good people. But if you had grown up in this culture, these teachers of the law would have made up the in crowd. These these would have been the people whose approval you sought These were the people that you wanted showing up at your party, saying hello to you as you walked by, standing next to you at temple. And likewise, we hear the term tax collectors and sinners, and we think, ah, those are the good guys. I know them too. I'm going to identify with those people. But remember in context who those folks actually were. Tax collectors were traitorous thieves. They were people who had sold out their neighbors and their countrymen, the people who lived next door to them, that knew them and loved them and interacted them and had known them since they were a child. These tax collectors determined that it was more important that they sell out their friends in order to gain money from them to line their own pockets. And in doing so, they were funding a foreign occupying military force. And if that wasn't enough, not only did they make their living this way, but the whole deal of being a tax collector, the whole reason that somebody was incentivized to be a tax collector is because Rome was saying, you go and get this much money from this person, but anything that you can get above and beyond that is yours to keep. Incentivized, state-sanctioned thievery. But not only does he say tax collectors, he also says sinners. And that term sinners is a broad term. There's a host of applications of that term, but it is one of the terms that is commonly used, at least, to describe women of the night, women of ill repute. 
Right, women who had a reputation in their communities. In other words, if you today in this room are the kind of person who would consider yourself a patriotic citizen or a respectable person, a person of some sort of morals, tax collectors and sinners would have made you uncomfortable. These would have been the people that naturally you and I, were we in their place, or if we had these same categories today, if you were sitting at a party with them and your pastor was dining with these people, you might think, man, that kind of makes me uncomfortable. Now imagine, imagine how stark that example comes when this is Jesus. This is the man who claims to be the Messiah. This is the man who claims to be a rabbi, a teacher. What kind of teacher allows himself to be in the company of known criminals and traitors and failures and losers? And that's exactly the problem that the Pharisees had with Jesus in this moment. They're declaring this man claims to be the Messiah, but he can't be because he's befriending the wicked. Not only is he befriending them, interacting with them, he's sitting down to eat with them. And in this culture, to sit down and eat with somebody was to extend the idea that they were acceptable to you. And what Jesus is going to communicate in these stories that he gives us this morning is, my response to sinners is the same as God's response to sinners. That God receives sinners. And while that is familiar language to us in the church, the profundity of the truth of that statement is so often lost on us. Because until we realize that we are first sinners, we will never realize the acceptance that is offered in Christ. So Jesus, knowing the hearts of these men, perhaps even hearing their murmurings, begins to craft a story to communicate this truth to them. And if you jump to verse 11, here's what he says. He said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now again, on first reading, at first blush, we tend to read this story and we think that the problem is that this young man is going to take the money and spend it in a way that is wasteful and self-indulgent and wicked. And certainly that is a problem within the story, but there is a far bigger issue at play here that gets lost to us in a Western context. Because in an Eastern culture, this is a time in which the patriarchy kind of defined the way that cultures and families operated, and it's an Eastern culture in which fathers in particular are revered and respected. And the inheritance was only to be given upon the death of the father. So when this son comes to his father and says, hey, I'd like you to give me the inheritance that would belong to me, what he is in essence saying is this, I wish you were dead. I would rather have your stuff than have you. Your relationship doesn't mean that much to me, but all of the wealth and all of the financial stability and all of the things that you've accrued over the years, that means a lot to me. He was disrespectful. He was entitled. He was everything that we despise in other people. And in this particular culture, his actions would have warranted at least a reprimand, and that reprimand would have potentially included his own disowning. The father would have been well within his rights at this point to say, if you're going to speak to me in that way, if you have so little regard for me as a father, if you have so little love and affection, if you care so little for your relationship with me, not only are you not going to get the things that belong to me, but you are no longer my son. That is what this man deserves at this point. 
But notice the father's unexpected reaction. And he, that is the father, divided his property, literally everything he owned, all of his wealth, all of his property, all of his animals, everything that had been accrued through not only his work, but the inheritance he received from his father. This man now divides his property between the sons. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And notice how this whole thing starts. The father not only doesn't disown his son, he actually grants the request. And I just want to stop here to make a commentary real quick about parables. We've got to be, always be careful when we come to parables not to read into them more than is actually intended to be communicated. There's a tendency that we have to try to dissect every single word or every single picture or every, every little piece of the parable and try to make meaning come out of it that may not have actually been intended by Jesus to begin with. And so a, a, as we note this story, we need to understand first and foremost that this is is not a parenting manual, right? This is not telling you what you ought to do if your child comes to me and asks for his inheritance, but I think there is a principle for parenting that can be drawn from this portion of the story, and it's encapsulated well by a pastor named Steve Brown who said it this way, and I want you to listen, especially parents. This was helpful for me this week. Here's what he said. Children will always run from the law, and they'll run from grace. The ones who run from law never come back. But the ones who run from grace always come back. Grace draws its own back home. As we interact with our children, and this is the sole thing that I'll try to pull from this that that may or may not have been intended, as we interact with our children, the call, the responsibility to interact with them graciously, to care for them and love them, and yes, even in, in terms of disciplining them, to communicate in that, though, the grace and the intentionality and the purpose and the love and the affection that you have for them is something that, something that goes well beyond the moment. It's something that returns dividends. It's something that gets, that gets pressed into hearts in the hopeful expectation that grace draws its own back home. Now, we're not told here what happens when this young man leaves exactly. We're told that he he engages in reckless living. The details of that are not entailed, but you can use your imagination. You You can imagine what a young man who's just come into a vast amount of money and finds himself far away from home in a city that is full of potential might do with that, with those finances. And as this man finds himself with half of his wealthy father's possessions, he's spending it on partying and food and drinks and women and whatever it is that he desires. Not only is he living for himself, but his actions, the things in which he's participating, are, a, are an in-your-face repudiation of everything he's been taught. Verse 14, some amount of time goes by, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now we have to admit to ourselves that there's a part of us that goes, good, That's exactly what this guy deserves. He's finally experiencing 
the fruit of what he's sown. He's spent all of his money in a short period of time. This famine hits. He's young. He's away from home. He's broke and he's hungry. He's ashamed and embarrassed of what it is that he's done. And so he goes to work for a local farmer. He's taking care of pigs. And remember, again, in this culture, the people who took care of pigs were considered to be a very low estate. Remember, these are kosher dietary laws that are still in place. So to interact with pigs in and of itself was considered offensive. But this man has nothing and no options And so he engages in this job that couldn't be more degrading to everything he had grown to believe. And not only is all of that in place, but in this moment he is so hungry that he is giving serious contemplation to eating pig slop. Now I've seen pig slop. Likely you have as well. But I'm not not sure what it would take to make that look appetizing, but this man is so deep in his lifestyle, he is so so rooted in his shame and his hopelessness in this moment that he is giving that serious thought. And so the question that arises in this moment is this, what was the prodigal's greatest sin that led him to this point? If we had to pick one. And certainly there's all sorts of things we could point to in his life. We could point to the potential of drunkenness or consumerism or a debaucherous lifestyle. We could think about the parties that he lived and the company that he kept and all of the things that he did that likely would have been offensive to moral people. But the point of this story is this. Your greatest sin is not your anger. It's not your sexual struggles. It's not your envy. It's not your greed. All of those things are symptomatic. All of those things are the fruit, not the root, of your sin struggle. Your greatest sin, according to this story, is trying to live in the Father's world without your Father. To live in God's world without the recognition of God's supremacy is an extremely disorienting thing. This man finds himself in a position he could have never imagined, a position he never would have chosen, and certainly finds himself in a place where he would say, man, if I could do it all again, if I could go back, if I could turn back time, I would never choose this for myself. And in choosing to neglect his father and abandon that relationship, he finds himself totally turned upside down to the point where he's considering eating this pig slop. Do you understand that this is at least in part how God views our sin? We're longing for the pods that pigs eat. And in trying to find our satisfaction apart from our identity in the father, this is where we land. So notice then the response of the son in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise, I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Therefore, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so just treat me as one of your hired servants. I love that phrase that begins in verse 17. He came to himself. It's a Jewish idiom, and it literally means he came to his senses. For the very first time, he is seeing the reality of his situation, the dire straits in which he finds himself. His life to this point has been marked 
by the entitlement of his youth, but no longer. He realizes for the very first time that he had nothing and he deserved nothing. And look what he does. He says, I'll go back to my father and I'll ask to be one of his servants. And we look at that again and there's a sense perhaps of admiration that we have for his attitude. You know what? He's right. He doesn't deserve to be the son. Good for him for for picking himself up by his bootstraps and trying to make things work and recognizing his problems and trying to make it right and pay back his father for what he owes him. And in the very same way, the inevitable outcome of our self-indulgence and our self-reliance and our self-promotion is to find ourselves dining at the pig trough of sorrow in the middle of our spiritual poverty. And the natural inclination of our heart is the very same as his. God, I'm not good enough to be your son. So I'm willing to strike a deal with you. I'll work for you. I'll be your employee. I'll be your servant. I'll do what you ask. And in exchange, you let me into your house and let me eat the scraps off your table. In other words, we feel that our only antidote to riotous living is religion. We feel that our only alternative to selfish living is self-salvation, but God is not interested in being your employer, nor is he interested in bartering his grace. And notice the response of the father in this story, verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And there's so much going on in that one verse because you see the father heart of God represented in the father in this story. Notice the very first thing that happens. He sees him far off. This man is waiting and watching for his son. You can imagine him day after day as he gets up in the morning and walks out of his house looking off into the fields just hoping and praying to see his son. He doesn't know if he's alive or dead. He doesn't know if he's sick or lying in a ditch somewhere. He doesn't know what's going on with his rebellious son. But there is just an element of hope of, I hope he comes home. And you can imagine this father looking day after day after day. And on this particular day, as he's looking off into the distance, he sees a figure come over the hill and he recognizes that form immediately. Charles Spurgeon, preaching a sermon on this text, said it this way, the father saw who it was. He saw where he had come from. He saw that he was dressed as a pig keeper. He saw the filth upon his hands and feet. He saw his rags. He saw his penitent look. He saw what he had been. He saw what he was. And he saw what he soon would be. His father saw him. God is a way of seeing men and women that you and I cannot understand. He sees right through us at a glance as if we were made of glass. He sees all our past, our present, and our future. And notice the response of the father when he sees his son. He is filled with compassion. And understand what that word compassion means because it's not typically how we use that word. He's not talking here about mere sympathy. He's not talking about just feeling badly for his son. He's talking about true and deep and lasting compassion. This despite the fact that the boy at this point had given no indication of repentance. 
The most natural thing that a father might assume in this moment is that this idiot kid is coming back to ask for more money. But do you understand that the father doesn't even wait to find out why he's there? The son who had cost him everything now comes home. The son had cost him financially. He had wiped his father out. And this dad didn't just tap into savings or or cash out some old bonds to give his son some spending money. He gave him what it would have been paid out upon his death, literally half of everything that belonged to him. And this son had not only cost him financially, but this son had cost him even more deeply emotionally and relationally. Countless tears and sleepless nights. And as any parent would tell you, there is a God-given desire that parents have for a deep relationship with their kids. So imagine the pain when this kid just walks away. But when he sees his child, his response isn't cautious or tempered. He had compassion. Literally translated, it means affection in the inward parts. If you've ever read one of the older translations of the Bible and come off the phrase bowels of mercy, that idea that in your innermost gut, at the seat of your emotions, the essence of who you are emotionally, you are turned, moved. That's exactly where the Father finds himself in this moment, a visceral gut-level reaction to seeing his son. He's overwhelmed. He's shaking. He's excited. His, his breath has taken away at the sight of his son. And what does he do with all of that? He runs to him. See, men at this time, particularly patriarchs of families, were never seen running. Culturally, it just wasn't something that was done. It was to, it was to risk losing face in front of other people. Running was something that was left for children and servants. Men of means and men of influence and men of society were never seen running. It was undignified, it was considered immodest, but while his son is far off, this father spurns convention and he sprints. And while his boy is still stinking from the rot of the pig pen, his father embraces him and kisses him. And kissing in this moment isn't just a sign of tenderness, though it certainly was that. Kissing in this moment is love displayed. While this boy's face is covered with muck and mire and sweat, the father kisses him. Kissing is love perceived on the part of this son who knew he deserved none of this. Kissing is forgiveness granted. Kissing is full restoration into the family. Verse 21, now the son finally gets a chance to speak. And he says to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The father doesn't wait to hear what the boy has to say. Nor does he say, I told you so. Nor does he say, tell me what you've learned about yourself or give me that apology, or make things right, or pay me back, 
or how dare you show your face here? The son doesn't even have a chance to suggest that he become the father's servant. In other words, the father didn't even have the opportunity to see if this boy was really repentant and if he really meant it. No, the father's love ran so deep that he forgave before his son could even ask for forgiveness. And the father gives a robe to cover his son's filth and shame. He gives him a ring which represented his rightful place in the family. He gave him shoes because he is a son and not a slave. And the prodigal's acceptance as a son didn't come with conditions or exceptions or qualifications. The only thing it required was the love of the father. And this teaches us an important truth about our God. Friend, do you understand that in our relationship with God, He is never, never, never the respondent? He is never waiting for us to make the first move. He's never waiting for us to figure things out and make things right. He's never sitting back waiting to see what we'll do so he can figure out what he's going to do next. He is always the one who initiates, the one who runs to us, the one who chases us, the one who embraces us, the one who kisses us. He pursues with nothing held back. He loves without condition. He gives without expectation of return. God is the heart of a father. And when the prodigal returned to his father, he didn't somehow undo every wrong thing that he'd done. He had indebted his entire family. He had brought shame to his father. Restitution had to be made. But this boy wasn't the one who made it. The father did. The father absorbed the cost of his son's sin. The father took the the shameful penalty of of his son's abandonment of the family. And not only does he do all of those things, but look what verse 23 says. The father says, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost, and he's now found. And they began to celebrate. My son who was dead is alive again. The Bible says that when, that when one sinner is saved by the miraculous grace of God, heaven itself explodes in rejoicing. When one sheep returns to the fold, the angels sing and shout and worship and proclaim the goodness of God for you and for me. And this father, likewise, in this moment, throws a party like this young partier had never seen before. 
he kills the fatted calf, the most expensive piece of cattle he owned, was now going to become dinner. And the wine is flowing, and the music is playing, and everyone gets the day off. And what did this young man do to deserve this? Nothing. He was the passive recipient of the grace of the Father. This is what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's writing here about people like you and me. And he says it this way, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now there's the law. If you're guilty at any point, you don't get the kingdom. You have tried to take what did not belong to you. You've used it wastefully. You've abandoned the family. You've rejected the father. You've brought shame and dishonor to the household. And what you get is the rightful deserts for what it is that you've done. You do not inherit the kingdom of God. Wrath and the judgment of God for those who reject him. Verse 11, so what's the antidote? And such were some of you, but you worked really hard, and you made things right, and you did your best, and you went to church, and you gave to the poor, and now God accepts you. No. And such were some of you, but you were washed. Past tense. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's grace. Grace abounding to the uttermost, to the chief of sinners, to those who could never earn their own way. And this, brothers and sisters, is what sets Christians apart from every other religion and every other philosophy and every other belief system in the world because we realize that we come empty-handed to God. And God comes to us with overwhelming love and forgiveness. And until you realize that you are first in the category of sinner, you are unable to receive the glorious promise of His grace. And so what is the promise of his grace? Well, it's seen in the heart of the father. When the, when the father ran to his son, he lost his dignity. He showed himself to be vulnerable. He risked rejection. He wasn't guaranteed that his son would repent or love him back. And that's the same way that Jesus came for people like us. According to Philippians chapter 2, Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up equality with God to adopt you into the family. He obeyed because you couldn't. He became a servant so you could become a son or daughter. He died to bring you life. Now, do you remember where all of this started? Back in verse 1 with the Pharisees. And we find out the response of the Pharisees to this story in Luke chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, which says this, the Pharisees heard all these things and they ridiculed him. 
And he, that is Jesus, said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. And we have to wonder if that made any impact at all on the Pharisees. Did they hear that and ridicule him all the more? Or in that moment, did they feel completely exposed and revealed? And for all of their religious efforts and for all of their pursuits and for all of their right living and for all of the honor that they had earned among other people here in this moment, they were made naked before God. The Pharisees, to our knowledge, never experienced the wonder of God's grace because they never realized their need for him. So the invitation for us today is twofold. First, would you be reminded of the love of Christ toward you? Yes, you collectively as the people of God, but also you specifically as someone for whom Christ died. That's what Galatians chapter 4 says in verse 4 when it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons and because you are daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So God sent Jesus, his son, into the world to redeem us from the condemnation of our sin. Jesus was the perfect son who deserved the inheritance of the father, but he gave up that inheritance. He was rejected so you could be accepted. He was disowned so that you could be adopted. And as if that wasn't enough, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is this unique Aramaic term. It's a, it's a term that was used by children in reference to their fathers and in the same way that our young children might refer to us in those terms, those simple two-syllable calls from mom and dad, mama, dada. In the same way the Spirit is given to us, and by that Spirit we cry out to a heavenly, holy, wonderful, glorious Father, not through, not through impressive titles, but we call out to Him as Dad. He gives us sonship. So not only first will we remember that love, but second, as a church for us, would that same radical love of Christ be reflected among those who gather as Disciples Church? Internally, among ourselves. Externally, as we deal with a world that is lost and dying. And the diagnostic question that we ought to pose to ourselves in this morning is this, how often do our hearts reflect that of the Pharisees rather than the Father? In other words, who are the people who you deem unworthy, unloving, and irredeemable? What people or what sins do you find so offensive and so disgusting 
and so appalling that you just as soon condemn the people who commit them as see them saved. And perhaps more strikingly, do you believe that those are exactly the people towards whom Jesus would have had compassion? And I ask that realizing it's a convicting question, at least for me. Because we love to believe that God has grace for our acceptable sins. But we struggle to believe that God has grace for what, in our view, are other people's unacceptable sins. But as we talked about last week, grace refuses to be limited by our expectations. And therefore, our expectations need to be realigned with Christ's. In other words, who are you embracing with the love of and compassion of Christ? Our hope for Disciples Church is that we would not be a country club for the self-righteous, but a hospital for the unrighteous. That we would be a place where those who are intensely aware of their own sin become even more intensely aware of God's grace. A place where those who feel most unworthy come to experience the surpassing love of the only one who is worthy. Our hope is that we would be a people who stop being surprised at the breadth to which sin spreads and instead become amazed at the depth to which grace reaches. And if you're here and you're wondering if this God is real, and that if he is real, is this grace actually for you? If God can actually meet you where you are, if God could actually love you this way, all you need to do is look at the story. That like the prodigal, you can receive the forgiveness in the middle of your transgression, in the middle of your iniquity, in the middle of your sin, in the middle of your war against God, in the middle of the moment where you have your fist shaking in his face. That he is not waiting for you to clean yourself up from the pigsty of your life and make yourself presentable, but he stands there and upon seeing you, runs to you and embraces you and kisses you puts a robe of righteousness about, around your body, the ring of family around your finger, and shoes that indicate that you are a son or a daughter. So we come here as we are today with broken and hurting marriages, with messed up kids, with financial ruin, with our hearts dominated by anger or envy or lust, struggling with the same old sins, we come as we are today, poor and needy. Look at me. And he forgives. Once for all, he forgives. And you do not lose your sonship and you do not lose your daughterhood because Jesus Christ lost his position in order to give you what belonged to him. So we therefore come boldly to the throne of grace.
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And it is part of why we come to this table. See, this table is not just a monthly tradition. It's not because we needed something to fill time in a service. I can do that on my own. No, we do it because there is real meaning and significance to what it is that we're representing and what it is we're participating in when we come to this table. It's a reminder that Jesus is a friend of sinners. That he not only befriends us, but that he eats with us. He not only befriends and eats with us, but he says, come into my family. Take my name. And so we come to this table remembering that the only reason we're able to do any of that is because Jesus gave himself for us. That as we eat this bread, we're remembering the fact that Jesus gave up his body, his own flesh for me and you. That he poured his precious blood out on the cross for us. That he invites us into communion not only with him but also with one another so that we as a church, too, can be friends of sinners. So if you're here and you know Christ this morning, what we're going to do is this. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to take a couple of minutes to be still, to be with our Father, to spend time with Him, to enjoy His presence, to be reminded of the fact that this Father pursued and chased and loved us and kissed us. And then when we're done with that, as the song plays, that's your cue to come forward to receive the elements, to receive the bread and the wine or the juice. And then please return to your seat. Come down the middle aisle and go around the outside. Return to your seat. And then please wait and we'll take those things together as a church, as a body, as a family in this place. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus and you're wrestling with all of this and you're not sure that it's true or that it's real or that it applies to you, there may be no better text for you to read than the one that we read together this morning. To read of the love of the Father for those who are in the middle of their mess. So let's pray together, and we'll go to silence. Dear Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for your love for us. Thanks for your pursuit of us. Thanks for chasing us down. And God, I pray that everybody in this room, each one, would know how precious they are to you. Not because they're great, but because you're great. Not because they're lovable, but because you are love. Not because they have earned your forgiveness but because Jesus Christ accomplished everything necessary for their forgiveness on the cross 2,000 years ago, that there is nothing they could do, nothing they could do to escape or run away from your grace and your love. And so God, convince us of what we struggle to believe. As we come to your table, remind us of your sacrifice, of your loving pursuit of us, and of the new communion and the new family that we have together. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.